Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be taking a look at two institutions that are extremely important to development around the world, and that's the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. I guess there's an expert on these two institutions and the whole Bretton Woods Institution. Dr. Kevin Gallagher is a professor of global development policy at Boston University, where he directs the Global Development Policy Center. Dr. Gallagher is the co-author of The Case for a New Bretton Woods Reforming Global Economic Governance for Prosperity and the Planet. Dr. Kevin Gallagher, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Great to be here. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you being with me today. Let's jump right into your book, The Case for a New Bretton Woods, Reforming Global Economic Governance for Prosperity and the Planet. First off, what is Bretton Woods and why write the book now? Well, Bretton Woods is a uh, very expensive, beautiful hotel in the mountains of New Hampshire which was seen as a very neutral place in the middle of World War II to renegotiate the international economic architecture that we've all sort of lived under uh, since 1944. But we wrote the book because it's no longer fit, fit for purpose for the 21st century. It's, it's really crumbling. And uh, the hair that broke the camel's back was really the global response to the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. And why, in what sense did that happen? Well, the world had a lot of trouble coordinating with each other to attack the virus, to stem the global economic fallout that that arose because of the virus around the world, and then to mount a a recovery. Uh, Rather than coming together in the International Monetary Fund to make sure that the world was still financially uh, stable or to work in the World Bank and the G20, et cetera, to make sure that there was financing and vaccination and green recoveries and so forth, most countries just turned inward. They sort of shunned these international institutions, uh, turned inward, put in export controls, tried to help themselves and didn't think about uh, the rest of the world. And in a globalized world, we didn't just, we didn't realize that uh, instability anywhere can turn into instability everywhere. Uh, pandemics in Southern Africa can all of a sudden come back and hurt us here in the United States. And uh, uh, so that made myself and my partner, uh, Richard Kozel Wright, uh, he's the head of the Globalization and Development Strategies at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. We sat down almost the way Harry Dexter White and John F. Keynes did in, in the 1940s and said, in the midst of all this chaos, what might a plan and a set of principles be to try to get the band back together and reform these institutions for the 21st century? We're in an interdependent world, and we're also, I think our TV program is interdependent. We just, the previous guest was the head of the UN Conference of Trade and Development in New York. So right. we're, we're very interlocked, I think, to a large degree. And you're absolutely right about the COVID as far as creating these problems. And and amplifying the problems, we had a mountain and still do of misinformation coming out from a wide range of media outlets, political talking heads, and what have you about how serious or not serious COVID is. But that's that's for another day, I guess. Well, let's go back to 1944, 
when the, I think there were about 43 countries that came together, something like that, to Bretton Woods to talk about setting up this institute or these institutional mechanisms to help promote, develop the world. Uh, what did the world look like in 1944? What drove them to this? Bill, one of the reasons why we wrote this book is because the world looked a lot like it does right now. The world was just, uh, had a looming financial crisis that was just over 10 years behind them, the Great Depression. There was rising inequality around the world, especially in the United States, and a rise of right-wing populism that led to Hitler. Uh, and we're actually in the middle of a war. Uh, the only big difference that uh, we bring into our book between now and then is that we also have to think about our climate crisis, that in addition to uh, having to have a stable world that brings full employment and mitigates and prevents climate, excuse me, financial crises, uh, and that helps restore and, and rebuild economies, we also have to be thinking about uh, the increased incidences of hurricanes and droughts and forest fires and the big uh, impacts that those are having around the world. That is very true. This is something that's been worrying me, and I'm not an expert in this area, but we, we hear all this nonsense about, well, we need to get out of the United Nations agencies. We, don't, shouldn't, we shouldn't participate in NATO. We can go inward. We, you know, it's America first, that type of thing. That's not the world we live in today, and that flashes back to some of the conditions are prior to World War I and certainly World War II, and we're having people who just do not understand history talking about a lot of this nonsense. But anyway, let's focus on the Bretton Woods just for a moment, uh, just for our viewers who may say, well, what's the World Bank? Do they, do they lend money to people all around the world? What's the International Monetary Fund? Uh, what is a simple definition of the World Bank and one of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund? Sure, let's start with the International Monetary Fund. So the, the founders of these institutions said, hey, we're moving in an increasingly interconnected world. And so things are going to happen in the world economy where countries might get into trouble where their economy is in such a situation where they're not going to be able to pay back their international debts. Now, if you or I in the United States, if we own a company and we go into dire straits, we can file for bankruptcy and the, uh, we're going to have to pay for it. But uh, there's, there's folks there in the government that will bail us out. There isn't a mechanism for that in the world. And obviously, in an interconnected world, if a couple countries start falling off the cliff, then we all do. So the International Monetary Fund is there to say, ah, Zambia, ah, Argentina, Mexico, countries either for external shocks that happen to them or things that, that they do in their own countries, if they can't pay their international debts and they get into a big crisis, the International Monetary Fund is there in theory to give you a loan, to help you get back on your feet, pay back your international, uh, pay back your international debts. And that's not just out of altruism for a Mexico. It's realizing that global financial stability is a global public good that requires global public cooperation because, as we know now, a, on a, a crisis in Mexico or a crisis in the United States can qu quickly become a global one or at least a, a regional one. Mm -hmm. The World Bank has a more long run view. It says private markets uh, are really good at, uh, at short term investments and so forth. 
But longer run things like infrastructure or in 1944, rebuilding war-torn Europe or in today's world, uh, helping to develop Africa, helping to develop and, uh, and shift things in China and Indonesia to make sure it's more climate friendly. Private markets are reluctant to go for those longer term things where the public benefits are larger than any private return. And so the World Bank was created initially just to couple with the Marshall Plan and rebuild war-torn Europe because things were in such bad shape that the private sector wasn't going to go anywhere near it unless there was public investment there to at least tee it up and, and start things going. After, if you've been to uh, Europe, they did a pretty good job of rebuilding it. They didn't. They decided not to put the place out of business and its mission since the uh, since the since the 1950s and 1960s has been to sort of have that approach and try to foster global development around the world. Now, the World Bank has had many successful projects, but what were one or two of them? I remember the Turbala Dam in Pakistan, and I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands around the world of infrastructure development projects. But there have also been various criticisms of the World Bank that some of these mega projects were not environmentally friendly, the uh, World Bank was funding fossil fuel investments, which were trying to move away from fossil fuels to clean energy. Are, are those legitimate concerns about the World Bank? Yeah, there's a real need for both of these institutions. But uh, over 75 years, uh, they, have, they each have tatter, a tattered record. Uh, the academic evidence shows that World Bank projects uh, are associated with economic growth. So they have been helpful in helping countries grow. But sometimes the pattern of growth has not been sustainable, lock countries into natural resource-based economic activity. And so when the copper price is high, you do pretty well, but when the copper price is low, you're in big trouble. They've been reluctant to help country diversify their economy. And like you said, uh, a lot of times they'll do these big mega projects and they'll just cut a deal with the finance ministry and they'll forget about the communities and the environment in and around of a project. And they've been slow to move into climate change. Uh, they've financed a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure and so forth. Uh, but to their credit, they're starting to think about, hey, we need to unwind that and think of creative ways to move in another direction. Exactly. Yes, that's, that's very important. They do that. What are some of the uh, suggestions you would make in your book to help? Uh, well, we'll start with the World Bank to modernize it, to make it more effective, to make it more efficient, and to make it more accountable, which I would imagine that would be one of your goals. Is that correct? Absolutely. In our book, we call for an accountable but stepwise increase in its resources. One of the other big problems with the World Bank right now is we have so many issues that we need to try to tackle in the 21st century that the private sector, for right and rational reasons, is not going to be the first mover on it. But the scale of the World Bank and its counterparts has not kept up with those needs. To take climate change as an example, we need an additional 2% of GDP every year from now until 2030 to be able to get ourselves on a track to get to just below 2 degrees Celsius uh, by, by 2050. Private sector is not going to be the first one to do that, but the World Bank is sort of anemic and they're holding back uh, the small amount of financing that they have. So we need more, in, more capital increases for these institutions, but not a blank check. These institutions need to have accountability mechanisms and to have deliberation so that the financing is steered towards fostering development and climate and social inclusion. The world's becoming more unequal, especially within countries. And we know that inequality also gives rise 
to right-wing populism and the rise of, uh, of dictators and authoritarianism around the world. And so one of the things, since a lot of our audience here, Bill, is uh, our Americans, is that sometimes Americans think of the World Bank as a big charity institution. It's a bank and banks make investments. And if we don't make investments in these long-term things in the future, we can't wall ourselves off in the United States uh, from the costs of not doing that. Uh, we might have been able to in the 19th century when we weren't connected to everyone, but the United States has been a leader of globalization and multilateralism until the past 15 years or so. And so we live in an interconnected world. These investments have to happen, but they need to be accountable. They certainly do. And a lot of people are coming to the realization that these institutions are really operated by conservative bankers. They're not a bunch of people just doling out money for sure. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at two very, very important international institutions. That's the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. My guest is Dr. Kevin Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is a professor of global development policy at Boston University, where he directs the Global Development Policy Center. Dr. Gallagher is the co-author of The Case for a New Bretton Woods, Reforming Global Economic Governance for Prosperity and the Planet. We're talking about, Dr. Gallagher, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. It, uh, as I recall years ago, I used to see statistics, and it's been a while, that we were talking about how these institutions are, they're making investments. They're not just doling out money, giving it money away, willy-nilly, that type of thing. But I'd seen years ago, like for every $1 the United States put in to the World Bank, we earn back like $1.35 or something like that. Are those, is that statistic still valid or is there, is there even a statistic like that today? I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen the most recent statistics for it, but uh, if you make a proper public investment, there is what's called a multiplier effect, especially infrastructure. These things that uh, you're not just building a road, you're building avenues for private markets to flourish and for different kinds of entrepreneurs and peoples and workers to be able to get more connected. So you definitely get more of a bang for a buck if it's done right. But there have been a lot of controversies over the past couple of decades that the World Bank hasn't been as effective. But the International Monetary Fund actually has a little bit more of a tattered record than even the bank does. And it really sort of strayed away from its mission uh, beginning in the 1980s. If you think about the global financial crisis in 2008 and the United States response to COVID, what did we do? We said, it's time to run a little bit of a deficit and it's a time to lower interest rates. We need to get people working. We need to expand our economy. We need to protect the poor and get things going because by definition, things got too uncertain, too scary. Private sector ran back to their houses. What's interesting that the IMF approach has been the opposite of that. When a Mexico or an Argentina or a Kenya or a South Africa or a South Korea has a big crisis 
and they can't go to the Federal Reserve like we can in our own country. Uh, and they don't have the financial wherewithal to have their own expansionary policy. The great thing about Bretton Woods is that you can go to the International Monetary Fund for funding. But interestingly, instead of this expansionary policy, the IMF would impose, they would give you a loan on condition that you impose austerity on your people. You cut your budgets, you reduce the spending, you make the economy worse in the short term with the hope that it would get better in the intermediate term because international investors might have more confidence in you that you've tightened up your belt. But international investors like to go where things are hot. When you're growing, they want to get in. When you're shrinking, they run away. And so the impact of international monetary fund policies has been quite negative. Uh, this austerity-led loans uh, has exacerbated inequalities in countries, caused a lot of political upheaval, uh, gotten a lot of people thrown out of office. In fact, uh, international monetary fund uh, policies just a few years ago in Ecuador, uh, there were so many social protests that the country had to move its capital city to Guayaquil uh, because the protests were so bad. So the IMF needs a significant reform to basically do what we do here at home. Uh, use that liquidity, use that financing to help push the economy in the right direction when it's when it's gotten all dried up so that markets get back going and, and investors will start investing into growth potential rather than anemia. It certainly does. Yes, that was I was glad you raised that because that, that's been a criticism of the International Monetary Fund. They have these draconian policies that really make the situation worse in some cases and can cause social upheaval governments being overthrown, that type of thing, which hardly lends itself to stability as far as any type of direct investment goes. So it, it is a challenge. Are, are there efforts underway now, the IMF, to change that? Or is that still pretty uh, a heavy-handed approach that they take? Uh, the, there was a promising year in 2020, uh, in part due to uh, the new managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, and in part due to the United States. The United States I should say in Bretton Woods, there was a secret handshake where the United States would always be the presidency of the World Bank and the Europeans would always have the presidency of the uh, International Monetary Fund and that the number two at the World Bank would always be an American, excuse me, would always be a European. The number two at the IMF would always be uh, an American. But regardless of who's at the top, the voting shares at the board have always been dominated by the U.S., and uh, and and we can and we can vote veto. Uh, when Biden first came into the office, and uh, and in early 2021, for the first time in over 30 years, the IMF programs didn't have much of that uh, conditionalities. We're actually about to show a study that that's turned back in the wrong direction again right now, uh, and that's partly because we're starting to see that in the U.S. right now, right? Uh, uh, rising interest rates, pulling back. On the one hand, we need to do that to a certain extent to stem inflation, uh, but uh, that inflation isn't everywhere around the world, and there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all uh, kind of approach to to it. So the world, the IMF is, um, to its credit, it's also just uh, renegotiated its deal with Argentina, which doesn't have as much draconian austerity. It's just started to embrace climate change. It just created in April a new fund that says, gosh, when a country in the Caribbean gets wiped out from a hurricane, it might not be because of something that they did pro you know, profligate spending. It's because 
the hurricane wiped out all the hotels and that's where we all go and spend our foreign exchange uh, to sit, to go to the hotel and go to the beach and buy cocktails and have a, a, a vacation. We're not doing it when there's a hurricane after a hurricane. So it wipes out their economy. And that that kind of a country that's getting hit by climate related extreme weather events should be treated differently and have a special fund that thinks a little bit more in the long term and has a different cost structure. So that's an example of them going, uh, going in the right direction. The IMF too also doesn't have enough firepower. So the, uh, in the beginning of COVID, uh, it was estimated that emerging market and developing countries need to come up with like $2.5 trillion to pay their external debts over the next three years. The IMF only has about 300, 400 billion to be able to offer those countries. Uh, in 2023, it's always built, built into the system. They will be voting on increasing the pool of funds within the fund. The IMF is just a fund. The problem is, is that the United States, when you put dollars in to the fund, your voting weight is weighted to how much money you put in and the size of your economy. In 2023, when we re renegotiate this stuff, uh, countries such as China and other countries that the United States has increasing tensions with will have more voting power. And so this is going to become very politicized. And it's really important. This is one of the core things in our books is it's fine and obvious that countries across the world are going to have a lot of bilateral differences with each other in an integrated world with different philosophies, different value systems, different political systems. And we should have bilateral foreign policy to deal with those grievances. But when it comes to public goods, global financial stability, war and peace, climate change, we all have to work together. And so that has to really drive the politics of the International Monetary Fund. But just like the response to COVID, it's been, let's just take care of ourselves. And in an interconnected world, that costs you more than it helps you. It certainly does. And we have to work on these problems together because we are interlocked or interdependent. And to think we can go it alone is just sheer folly. It, uh, those days have been dead for not only decades, but probably for centuries. Well, as, as, in closing, as you look at the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, what, what do you think are the major challenges? You've talked about many of them up to this point, but is there one for each one that they need to focus on immediately to try to make each institution a more effective institution and more accountable? Sure. So for the International Monetary Fund, two things. One, work harder on preventing financial instability. And that's to work with countries to go back to what we had in 1944, to help them regulate private capital flows so they go to productive ends and not just become ends in and of themselves. There's lots of speculation in financial markets in the world economy that doesn't help you build a business or help you build a road. So to prevent this, we need better regulation on private capital markets. To mitigate the crises that do come, we need more firepower in the International Monetary Fund. And these land loans have to look like what we do here in the North. Like I said before, they can't be austerity led. They should be jobs and stimulus led. In terms of the World Bank, uh, it also needs more firepower, but it needs to be accountable. We need massive mobilization of finance to make our economies more social inclusive and to, more, to be more green. In the words of our president, we need to build back a better world and the private sector, just like after World War II in Europe, isn't going to be the first mover. And we need public development banks to tee that up and set the stage 
uh, but they need to be accountable. We need to make sure they're accountable to the communities, to the workers and the entrepreneurs in and around these projects, that the developing countries that are getting these loans are part of the conversation, and that these financing is not for speculation, is not for corruption, uh, but actually goes for transforming the world economy to one that's more socially inclusive and environmentally sustainable. And these are two institutions that are, I guess, well, now that I think about it, they're, they're part of the United Nations system, specialized agencies. And these are two institutions that most people have probably never heard of, but they still impact our lives. And if they're conducted properly, they can impact us in a very positive manner. But Dr. Kevin Gallagher, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Wonderful to be here. And thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.